We turn in God's Word to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, <coughs> verses 19 through 20. In the book of Romans, this is the pivot point, uh, the point at which Romans turns to from talking about <clears throat> our sin and the desperate condition we are in because of our sin. Romans 1, talking about the Gentiles. Romans 2, Paul bringing the discussion around to talking about the Jews. You know, you man who judges, uh, you think that because you have the law, you are without excuse. You are not. Uh, you, you have no excuse. Uh, you, you think you are, you, you think you are excusable, not without excuse. You think you are excusable, but you have no excuse. Paul says in Romans 2, 1. And then he proceeds to summarize the entire human race in chapter 3. Uh, are Jews better off than Gentiles? No, there is not one who is righteous. No, not one. Not one who understands, not one who seeks after God. We have all become corrupted. And now, in verse 19 and 20, we pick up our reading <clears throat> from God's word before looking at the catechism. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we begin to consider from the nature of our sin and misery, what kind of redeemer, what kind of mediator we need. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand the truth of your word that has been confessed throughout generations. Father, we ask that we would stand faithful to you in the long line of the church. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> it is the case that because heat expands, you have to close the door if you want to have a, a room that's warm. And this is true of everything that has to do with heat. It has to do with the oven. If you wanted to bake a cake, if you wanted to cook these delicious uh, dishes here, you have to close the doors. You have to close all the nooks and the crannies and the little openings where the heat can escape. And that's what the catechism's doing here. The catechism is closing every door of possible escape that we could pursue, that we could try to escape through in thinking that we can save ourselves. The temperature in the catechism has been rising on purpose because, you see, God is melting our excuses in the crucible, in the heat of his word. The excuses that we have or the arguments that we could proffer for why we can save ourselves. And the catechism, in repeating God's word, says, you can't. You can't. Our condition is so desperate. There is no possible avenue of escape Catechism's been driving home the point of our misery, of our fallen condition, of our alienation from God. We are condemned from without and we are corrupted from within. And just a quick review of the catechism up until this point. Catechism in questions two and three says we are miserable. 
And question three and four tells us that our misery comes from the law or our knowledge of our misery comes from the law of God. Our misery comes from ourselves, not from the law of God. But we know our miserable condition because of God's law. God in his law reveals to us who he is, reveals to us his holy character, reveals to us what we were made to be. And then in catechism, question and answer five, we're told we cannot keep God's law, but we continually break those two great commandments. We are inclined by nature to hate God and hate our neighbor. We have a a vertical inclination against God and and a horizontal inclination against our neighbor. And these two are always conjoined. And then catechism six, seven, and eight tells us that God is not to blame for our sinful nature, right? Is it God? No, it's not God. Catechism question and answer nine tells us God is not unjust to condemn us nor to require what, um, to condemn us nor to require what we cannot keep. And then catechism 10 tells us that God is not indulgent, what we looked at last week. He cannot wink at sin, right? Uh, yes, of course, God is merciful, but he is just. And that's where Catechism 11 leaves off. And that's where we left off last week. So the bottom line here, beloved, is that we cannot escape God's condemnation. We cannot think that somehow there is some opening in the oven that we can escape out of. We have no hope of salvation in ourselves, but rather we find ourselves in the condition that Romans 3 tells us. Romans 3.19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In the law of God, we are confronted with God's holiness and our misery and in humility, what are we called to do? We are called to have our mouths stopped. We must humbly shut our mouths, Paul says here. And this is a a key indicator of the person who has been humbled by God. The sinner who has not stopped mouthing off about their goodness, about how good they are, about how holy they are, right? That they have some merit, they have some work, they have some obedience before God that counts for their salvation. That sinner does not know God's holiness. That sinner does not know their own sinful condition. No, the law is given so that every mouth may be stopped, And that the whole world may be held accountable to God. The mouth that has not been stopped by God's holiness. The mouth that has not been stopped in humility, knowing their own sinful condition. That person has a fantastical, imagined and proud view of their own strength, of their own obedience, of their own holiness before God. They have an elevated view of themselves. They have elevated themselves above God and have brought God and his law down to their level. And they are not ready for God's salvation, which is what follows in Romans 3, verse 21. Until every mouth is stopped, until we understand God's holiness, until we understand our own sinful condition, we are not in any way ready to hear the amazing news of God's grace. That God does what we cannot do. That God accomplishes what we in our sinful condition could never work. Which is obedience. Which is perfect death according to God's law. So this is where we are in the catechism. We are ready to 
consider who the deliverer is. And the Heidelberg Catechism begins to tell us how we can be saved. God's justice must be satisfied. God's justice must be paid in full. In question 12, how can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires in the answer (coughs) that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full either by ourselves or by another. Because of Adam's breaking of God's commandment, there are now two things God requires. First of all, whoever is to be returned to God's favor must fulfill the prescription of God's law with perfect obedience. But then because of Adam's disobedience, they must now fulfill the penalty of breaking God's law with a perfect death, a perfect life, a perfect death. The prescription of the law, the penalty of the law fulfilled. Forget about perfect holiness, perfect obedience for a minute here. We have no ability to obey God's law, right? The catechism has told us this, repeating God's word over and over and over again. But what about a perfect death? Can we die a perfectly obedient death that completely satisfies God's justice? That pays the penalty of breaking God's commandments and returns us to God's favor? Here, the catechism, as it were, is trying on for size the different responses, the different objections that man has had over the centuries, over millennia. Can we die a perfectly obedient death that completely satisfies God's justice? The answer from Scripture is simply no. Consider, Consider from our own political state and the laws of this land, what used to be the laws, how the highest crime receives the most severe punishment. First degree murder. It was the case up until about 100 years ago that first degree murder received capital punishment in every state. The highest crime receives the most severe punishment. There is a one-for-one correspondence between the crime and its punishment. And so when we consider God's law, we're not considering a human law. We're considering the divine law of God. We have broken the infinite and eternal law of the infinite and eternal holy God. And so what does even the smallest sin deserve? It deserves eternal punishment. And that's why you see, beloved, hell is eternal because a sinner can never completely repay. A sinner can never completely be punished as a full payment for their sins. And this is not only the reality, but this is our confession about what we deserve. We deserve, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. But then the catechism asks the question, well, <clears throat> how, about, how about you? Can you satisfy this? If this is what needs to happen for us to be returned to God's favor. Question 13, can we make this payment ourselves? The answer, just very pithy, straight to the point, certainly not actually we increase our debt every day. Imagine trying to move 
homes, from one apartment to the other, from one house to another. When you have to move, um, we can boil down a move to about one or two things that needs to happen. You have to pack your things and you have to clean your house, right? But how can you pack your home if you're constantly bringing new items into it? How, How can you be pure, purified and be made whole of your sin if every day you're bringing something in, a new sin, a new set of sins? How can you clean your home if your hands are filthy with grime, with the filthiest kind of grime imaginable? When you try to clean your home, right? You start cleaning your walls and you're just spreading the grime. You clean the carpet and then you're getting the grime in the carpet. You, you clean each room only to find that you're spreading the grime. And that's what we are, you see. Every day, the more we try to be clean, the more defiled and dirtied we become. <coughs> each day, <clears throat> a sinner is more guilty before God, more unable to pay for their sins, not only indebted to God because of their sin, but indebted to God because of their attempts at righteousness, which only further spirals them down into the grime and filth of their sinful condition. We cannot satisfy the demands of God's law, neither its prescription nor its penalty. We cannot make this payment ourselves. <clears throat> and then question 14, Heidelberg then picks up, but maybe another creature can. Okay, you can't, you're a sinner, but maybe another creature can. <coughs> but there are reasons why, many reasons why this cannot be as well. Look at Psalm 49, just for starters. Psalm 49, verse 7 and uh, 8 and 9. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Who, who can ransom another person's life? Who can pay the penalty for another person? We are all sinners. Will a sinner die for another sinner? How can another sinful person suffer eternal punishment for me when God requires that they suffer eternal punishment for their own sins? Who can die for a sinner? Another sinner? No. But then, secondly, why can not another creature pay for my sins? Well, what authorizes someone to die for another creature? For me, for a sinner. See, here we would love to offer up things to God that we think satisfy the claims of his justice. And yet it is God who determines and specifies the conditions of his covenant and his salvation. Only God can establish the relationship between the parties involved. (coughs) God has not established a relationship of representation and substitution, solidarity and union between the guilty sinner and whoever they want 
to be their representative, right? I might want to offer up one of my children as a child sacrifice to God and say, well, my children, one of my children will take my place. But God hasn't established that covenantal union, that covenantal relationship. We cannot take it upon ourselves to specify and determine the nature of his covenant and his salvation. It's like uh, getting a lawyer before to stand before a judge who has no admittance before the judge, right? It's like getting your friend to be your advocate. Well, you can get all the friends you want in the world, but they have no standing before the judge. They have not been admitted to the bar. And so it is with us before God. We could want to bring in other creatures. We could want to bring in what we think or who we think is holy before God. But God has not established that covenantal union between us and whoever we want to represent us. You cannot represent yourself before God. You have no standing before the judge. And you cannot have someone else represent you. No one has authorized someone to die for you. And then thirdly, no mere man can die for you. No mere man can die for you. And this is where a catechism question and answer 14 is getting at, which it's going to pick up then in Lord's Day 6. A mere man, a mere creature, let's say he's perfect. Let's say he's been obedient. He's been righteous, perfectly, perpetually, personally righteous. He hasn't broken God's law. He has obeyed God's law from his heart. Can that mere man be my representative? No. Because a mere creature, even a perfect creature, cannot endure the weight and the crushing weight of God's judgments. The issue, you see, is not their sinfulness here necessarily, but their finitude. It's not their fallenness, but their finitude. It's that they are a creature. No mere man, perfect as he may be, can die for me, can take the weight of God's judgment for me. <clears throat> well, what about an animal sacrifice? Some animal sacrifices were commanded by God in the Old Testament. God did establish a principle of representation and substitution in the Old Testament between the Israelite worshiper and the animal sacrifice. The Israelite would lay his hands on the animal, representing the transfer of guilt from the Israelite to the animal and representing the transfer of innocence and purity from the animal to the Israelite. But these animal sacrifices were placeholders. They were symbols. They were types of Jesus Christ established by God until the perfect Lamb of God would come. In fact, once Jesus has come, they have been made obsolete. Hebrews 10.4 says so clearly, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animals cannot take away sins in themselves. And this is something that the Old Testament Israelite worshiper, the, the Old Testament believer should have understood that animals are not righteous. They've never kept the law. How can they be righteous? Righteousness has to do with law keeping. 
And animals have to be continually sacrificed. There is in them, Hebrews 10 says, a reminder that they are not it. They are not the definitive salvation that God has provided once and for all time. Because they are continually sacrificed. Nor can an animal sacrifice be offered that can atone for all of God's people once for all time. You see, in the Old Testament, it wasn't the animal that cleansed the Israelite worshiper, but it was Jesus who saved and cleansed the Old Testament believer. Who Jesus, who was represented typologically through the Old Testament system of animal sacrifices and who provided for the salvation and purification of Israel. And so the Old Testament believer would bring his animal, his sacrifice, but had to trust God, not the animal. The Old Testament believer still had to trust God's promise and salvation that God provided what he needed. In the Old Testament, you do not have a faithless system but you have a system everywhere that shouts and demands the faith of the israelite christian the israelite believer no god will not accept the sacrifice of another creature on our behalf even if they are innocent and perfect and so we get to question 15 what kind of mediator and deliverer do we need? And the Heidelberg Catechism answers this question, you see, from the nature of our sin and misery. It could have answered this question in any number of ways, but you see, it has been laying down the tracks now, talking and discussing and explaining our sin and misery, the tracks on which the train of God's redemption will run. Our sin, you see, requires a mediator that has two things or is two things. First of all, he is a true and righteous man. He is able to die for man because he's identified with mankind because he is not just like us, but he is us. A man, as Hebrews 2, 14 and following says, who has partaken of our flesh and blood. We need a mediator who is a man, a true and righteous man. But then secondly, our mediator must be true and all-powerful and infinite God who is able to save. Man is not able to save, but God is. God who is able to save not just one man or two men or one household. We're going to look at the feast of Passover later today and the Passover is a celebration that requires a lamb for each household in the first Passover right you couldn't have one lamb sacrificed for all of Israel in Exodus 11 and 12 and 13 no each household needed its own lamb but here you see what we're told is that we have a mediator who is infinite (coughs) and all-powerful God able to save not one or two and that's it but who can save all of his people from their sins. And here we find, as it were, the paradox of salvation that only a man can save mankind because a man has sinned. Men have sinned. Mankind has sinned and fallen from the glory of God. 
So only a man from our midst can save mankind. <clears throat> only a man can represent us. But it can't be a mere man. Since all men are condemned. Since all men are corrupted. This man who is our mediator, who is our redeemer, this man who, according to Genesis 3.15, will be sent by the Father to crush the serpent's head, this man must be God himself. Not a man who became God. No, God who has become man. God who became incarnated, God who took on our flesh. Not man who has ascended into heaven, but God who descended from heaven above, from his abode of holiness and purity and absolute light to dwell among us, to show us the Father and to bring us home to be with him by fulfilling the claims of God's justice on our behalf. And that's the subject of next week's catechism lesson. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we thank you for your mercies and goodness to us. We thank you that you are kind. And Father, have shown your kindness in so many ways in creation, but especially in redemption by sending Jesus Christ your only begotten son into this world, God of very God, man of very man, light of very light, begotten, not never made, who from eternity past dwelt with you and yet in time, in the fullness of time, was born of the virgin, born under the law to redeem us and fulfill in his person and work both the prescriptions of the law and the penalty of the same to make us the adopted sons of Almighty God. Father, we ask and pray that we would be mindful, that we would remember the Savior, and that, Father, we would love him all the days of our lives for his glorious and amazing and gracious work on our behalf. We ask and pray these things now in his name. Amen. <clears throat>